All right, as Mark passes out that handout, I encourage everyone to open their Bibles to John 17 again. Actually, uh, so John 17 is our main text, but I want us to let an earlier word in John set us up. So turn to John chapter 6. We'll be reading this in just a minute. Uh, For those who are just joining us, we are working through the longest prayer recorded of Christ. And although the prayer is often divided of Jesus praying for himself, Jesus praying for the disciples, and Jesus praying for the church to come, there are three themes that capture every turning point of what Jesus is leading us to see. The themes are given, kept, and in. Last night we focused on the fact that when we understand the plan of salvation, we are seeing the Father gift a people, us, to the Son, and the Son gifting us to the Father, and then the Father and Son gifting us with themselves. This giving love, this entering into a personal relationship that was planned in eternity past. And the analogy that this chapter kind of feels is that when we walk the tightrope of life, we need to know that both ends of the tightrope are secure. And John spends time keeping us a fast stake on where we come from in eternity past and where we're going in eternity future. And when we rightly grip our lives on what God has planned and where God is leading, we have strength for today. And it is so right that Jesus turns to this next subject of kept, because that's the natural question. If these things are eternally true, that God has so planned salvation before anything was created, and this future is so certain of where we're going, what about today? And Jesus already taught the disciples what he's about to pray in John chapter 6. Look with me. And let these truths wash over your heart. John chapter 6, starting in verse 37. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Do you hear how that summarizes the story of every believer? That we are drawn to God, we have been given to God, we come to God, and there we are kept and never cast aside. That is a truth that ministers to so many of our insecurities. However often you are cast aside by family or friends, or you're in a season of loneliness and grief, you are never cast aside by your Savior. You are loved. You are kept. Because that's what salvation means. Let's look at Jesus' prayer now in John 17. What Jesus taught the disciples right there in the will of the Father and Son, that everyone who looks on the Son will not be lost, 
but raised on that final day. This is what is the substance of the prayer we will study this morning. John 17, picking up where we left off in verse 11, Jesus continues to pray. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is now taking those eternal realities, what is already true according to the plan of God, and applying them presently for our comfort today. And what we're going to be focusing on is that salvation means God himself keeps us to himself. That the essence of what God has accomplished in this hour, this cross, the glory of God, is that he keeps us and will never let us go. In other words, as we keep his word and we receive the gospel, he keeps us and fulfills the gospel. Not that it depends on us, but that as we are his people defined as a people who believe and keep the word, we declare that it is God who keeps us. And this keeping, this protection we're going to see is two blessings. God guards us for glory and God grows us in glory. At the very keeping and the fulfilling of salvation is first a guardianship for that day of glory and the growth in preparation for glory. It's not that God wants us to be existing and hanging in there by our white knuckles But he guards us faithfully and grows us in faith for that day he returns. And so there are four things we are going to see as Jesus now prays God's keeping upon our lives and salvation. And the first is what we've already been noting, which is the personal keeping of the father and son. The personal work of God in verses 11 through 12. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Note that he first clarifies why this is necessary. Jesus is about to depart from the world. He's going to elaborate why this urges him to prayer. But because his time is up, his hour is finished, and there is a coming moment of absence where Jesus will leave his disciples. He will not let them be lacking in what they need. He prays, 
to the Holy Father. He is asking that the Father would keep them in this world and to keep them in his name. Look at how he addresses in verse 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. As the prayer progresses, there's this growing clarity of who this father is. He begins the prayer in verse 1 saying, Father, the hour has come. Here he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. And when he finishes this chapter, he says, Righteous Father. There is this repetition and growing clarity of who exactly Jesus is praying to. It is his father. It is the Holy Father and the Righteous Father. This is all preparation for what it means to be kept by God. That as we are kept by God, we are proving to the world who is this father he so loves. And we are becoming like that father as we are sanctified. In other words, guarding and growing. More to be said. But in this moment, he begins this particular prayer request by saying, Holy Father, keep them in your name. We discussed a bit about the gravity of that name, how it represents the person. It speaks of how we trust in that person, how it represents that person. And here Jesus is saying, Father, keep them in that name. Three aspects of what that might mean in its fullness. The first and obvious is that we are sealed He is labeling his people. And this is a repeated theme throughout scripture. The door of all of the Israelites in the Exodus were painted with blood, marked out as his people. In depictions of what's to come, God comes and puts his name on the foreheads of all his children. He is marking them. This is mine. There is a seal and it's the very image that Paul clings to of the Holy Spirit. When it enters into a child of God who has been redeemed by grace, they are sealed for the day to come. The presence, the name of the Father is being kept upon them. And God doesn't break his seals. Thus it speaks also of our salvation that we are his, we're becoming like him. To be kept in his name is what the gospel gives But thirdly, it also speaks of what's at stake. That for his sake, he puts his name saying, my name is on the line. The success of your salvation proves or disproves what kind of God I am. And let me tell you the end of the story. It's victory every time. Keep them in your name. He puts the sake of his name on the line. To show how gloriously faithful, relentlessly victorious this God is. The name that Jesus manifested in verse 6 where he says, I have manifested your name to the people. They heard the name. They saw the name of God. And now the name is upon them. This is how we are kept. We are kept by the Father and Son in their name. That God is good, holy, faithful, loving, gracious, just, true, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, beautiful, sovereign, long-suffering. That name is the name that Proverbs 18 speaks about. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. 
It's the name that the psalmist call upon saying, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May God save you by his name. It speaks of not just truth, but his power and might. But there is a response too, and it's implied in that simple prayer. Holy Father, keep them in your name. One commentator notes that it speaks about our loyalty, our adherence, our faith. Keep them understanding, knowing, persevering in who they know you are. And so as we see the securing love of God, our response isn't passivity and carelessness, but to respond in holding fast. That God's guardianship moves us to grip the faith we believe. That as God keeps us, so we walk out. And then he further defines a theme that he's going to discuss more at the end of the chapter. Look at verse uh, 11, where he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I'm going to let Bob develop this theme of how we are in God, this oneness. But here it's already shown how this is part of what God is doing. He is keeping his people together in unity. And we are in unity with one another because that's who God is. God didn't devise unity because it seemed like a good idea. God is unity. And thus we cherish and savor the Trinity in its intimate, eternal love. That is the Gift and presence, the church is to live out. So how does a church grow in unity? Knowing and being bound by the name of God. Believing and acting upon the Father's keeping of every child who has the name. It is living the unity that already exists in the Trinity. We don't have to make up unity. It is eternally existed. And we have been joined into it. It is an acting of faith on who God is for one another. And the unity that Christ won on the cross. We are kept together. And in case those questions that flood our mind begin to cloud the beauty of what Jesus is saying, he kind of answers the next question. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost. The Son of Man fails not any who call upon his name. While I was with them, while Jesus worked in person. I love the fact that even as he speaks about not losing any, he already understands all the disciples are going to forsake him. Once again, when Jesus is praying this prayer, he is lifting his eyes to heaven, verse 1. He is seeing everything through eternity's perspective. He doesn't just see the coming apostasy of every disciple who will leave him alone to suffer. He sees the resurrection where they are restored and he sees them in glory with him forever because he won. And that's how he sees our story. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost. But then the next understandable question is, but what about Judas? And this is what he speaks to in verse 12. Not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
Jesus spends time because he does not want Judas's betrayal to confuse the promise of God. Judas deceived, betrayed, and listened to Satan. That was not God's failure. That was not the flaw in God's plan that he mostly saved everyone. This was not the overlooked weakness in the eternal planning of the Trinity or the one success of Satan. Judas was permitted and planned by God to be the tool of Jesus's sacrifice. But it was Judas who gave himself to that sin. At every turn, it is Judas who is responsible for his sin. But it was no mistake or overlooked. That's the emphasis right there. Don't miss it in verse 12. Except the son of destruction, already clarifying, not the son of the father, the son of destruction, the son of Satan. One who followed and listened to the lies of Satan to the cost of Christ and did not repent that the scriptures might be fulfilled. God foreknows those who will reject him. God does not... uh, is not surprised by evil. And in case we miss it, just in the next chapter where Jesus is being portrayed by Judas, in verse 9 of chapter 18, he says it again. This was to fulfill the word that he has spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Judas was not given to the Father. He betrayed God. He was not helpless, nor was he Satan's puppet. It was Judas who willingly carried out the act of betrayal. We are not to be confused by Judas. We are to be comforted by the eleven. And we are to be comforted by Peter. The fact that Peter denied Jesus three times, even being warned that is exactly what was to happen. And yet Jesus restored every one of those times. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Is the comfort we need to know that God will not lose not one of whom he calls and gives to himself. Before I continue in the text, I was savoring last Sunday where we discussed how the dead in Christ will rise first in that moment of glory when Christ returns And all of those who went before us and died in the faith will be the first to greet us with Jesus. I just was cherishing how not one saint will be forgotten. Not one child of faith will be overlooked as the king calls to the graves and has the corpses rise to see their savior in physical resurrected eyes. And I was cherishing how many Christians I know that were faithful, simple and yet hidden from the world. One of those Christians is the name of Wes Russell. None of you will know who Wes Russell is. Very few people did. But he was the greeter at the church I was able to serve as an intern pastor many years ago. And that man was dressed so cleanly, professionally every Sunday with joy in his face. He greeted every person. And he was one of the anchors of encouragement for me in the beginning ministry. And he ministered to a wife who was having a terrible case of dementia and never once did he complain. I remember getting the phone call and I found out that Wes Russell went to glory and just weeping to miss that brother. 
But let me tell you, he was not lost. When Jesus said these words, he spoke over that Christian that nobody knew about, but the father knew completely and died on the cross for. Not one of them has been lost, but Wes Russell will be one of the first people who will greet me into heaven when Christ returns. How many more people we can come to mind of loving grandmothers who ministered to the generations afterwards in hidden prayer or the simple saints who gave out of their poverty or those in the background constantly serving. Not one Christian forgotten. The Christians who are suffering namelessly overseas, persecuted in their faith, dying in a testimony of an example of a relentless faith in the Christ we know they're not forgotten. Not one of them is lost. They are kept by the Father and the Son. The second point Jesus moves to in this prayer is how he keeps us. What he gifts us with, the means of this keeping of the Father. Look at verse 13. But now I'm coming to you, speaking to the Father, and these things I speak in the world that, here's the first, they have may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The way God keeps his people is by giving his joy. God doesn't grit his teeth hoping, I hope they make it. I've already put so much on the line with this one. But the daily gifts that are at the table, if we but feast, is God's own joy. A joy that is fulfilled in us. Its end and purpose is that we would know the delight of God keeping us every day. All the ways we fail and all the ways he catches us. It's his joy. That's what he committed. I have given them my joy. His sustaining power is his pleasure. And it's the strength and fountain for our faith to know that's the God I serve. In John 15, the same language is used. He speaks about the vine abiding in his love, abiding in the vine. Jesus says, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you even hear that promise? He doesn't give us half a cup of joy or just a just a crumb, but that our joy would be full. That's how we're kept. And then something that none of us are surprised by the other. How? How are we kept? We are kept with his joy and his word. Look at how he continues in verse 14. I have given them your word. And this he's going to talk about a little bit later, but I don't want to miss that as he's speaking about the kind of keeping the father and son do for his people whom he has given to himself. They are kept with his joy and his word. We are practically kept by the promises and revelation of God. This is not foreign to the Bible. In Psalm chapter 12, the psalmist sings out the words of the Lord are pure like silver purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us. Do you hear that? The faithfulness to fulfill God's word is directly related to his faithfulness to keep and guard us. 
And the center is the Bible. It's no surprise that just in John 16, the chapter before this prayer, he begins by saying, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. That every word that flowed from Jesus' mouth, the teaching that was filling their hearts, was God supplying with what they needed to persevere, how God will keep them. This relates a bit to our morning devotions of how really our eternity depends on whether or not we pick up this Bible and believe it. It's the gravity of this book. Our keeping and persevering is through believing the words of God. It's how we drink of joy. The Bible is the cup. Joy is the gift. If we but drink and apply it daily, day and night, practically, worshipfully, by the Holy Spirit, that is the path to glory. We don't have to wonder, how am I going to survive to the next day? Open the Bible. We don't have to wonder, what do I do in this situation? Open the Bible. What hope do I have in this particular circumstance? Brother and sister, open the Bible. We are kept with his joy and his word. And even as it says, I have given given them your word. There again, we see the necessary response. We must keep that word. We must obey, not just to be a hearer, but a doer. But that's the problem. We want joy without obedience. We want happiness without submission. We want the gifts without the faith required to walk in trust. But the Bible overturns that lie and says joy comes from obedience. Delight, peace, hope flows from our faith acting out the promises of the word. We keep the word, God keeps us. Not that it depends on us, but this is the path. Jesus will swing back to this theme in our last point, but let's continue with point three. First, we see we are kept by the Father and Son. Secondly, we are kept with his joy and his word. Thirdly, we are kept because of this world. Hear how Jesus does not shrink back from the coming reality for disciples in verse 14. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. In John 15, Jesus spends extensive time discussing what life will be like to be a Christian. And it's to be hated. It is to be on a hostile territory. Here he summarizes these themes. We are first hated for who we are. He says, we are hated because we are not of this world, just as he is not of this world. Because of our identity of who is Christ and how we are in him, that's why we're hated. In John 15, he explains this further by saying, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but I chose you out of the world. And that's why you're hated. To understand why the world would hate Christians, you have to remember why Jesus was rejected and hated. Jesus was rejected because he showed people they lived in darkness and loved it. That we hate the light and exposure of God's holiness. 
They rejected Jesus because they were blind and being told so offended them. We rejected Jesus because we were told we were still in our sin despite every moral effort we layered upon our lives. We rejected Jesus because we didn't understand the voice of the shepherd. We couldn't hear. All we could hear was our voice and the voice of Satan. They rejected Jesus because in his presence they realized the true nature of every human that we are separate from God. And there's nothing we can do to fix that. But do you hear how in that despair, that's only half the story? What else did John's gospel teach us? Not just why Jesus was rejected, but who Jesus was. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the living waters. I am the door. I am the great shepherd. I am the vine. In all that we are not, he is. We can't fix it. That's why he came. We are lost. He came to find. And that gospel message is why we are hated. We are hated for who we are. We are Christ. And the only other way to understand it with the light of of Scripture is what Jesus says. This fulfilled what was written in their law. John 15 verse 25. They hated me without cause. We are also hated for what we do. Christ works. It's not just an identity, but the way we live. And I love how the Bible constantly connects that who we are means a way of life. In John 15 as well, Jesus says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. It's not just the fact that we exist as Christians, but because we live as Christians, we bring conviction to the world. We are hated because of who we are and what we do as Christians. And thus, we need the Father's keeping. All of that aggression and persecution and suffering to come, we do not walk alone, brothers and sisters. And this is especially true with the enemy that is now labeled in verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The Bible does not shrink back from what darkness is and the level of threat against our souls. It understands it in clarity and flinches not. Even here, the way Jesus requests of the Father. I didn't say take them out. This isn't about them escaping pain, but that you would show your power through their pain. The power through hostile territory that in the spiritual warfare of darkness and light, you would succeed and show how marvelous you are. The answer is not to escape, but again, hear it in verse 15, that you keep them. It is the father's keeping John 10, my father has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of my father's hand. And then the emphasis again in verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Our identities is why we are hated and our identities is why God keeps us. We are his. Even here, I wish to just pause And appreciate the fact that as Jesus is praying, he is praying knowing this is exactly the path ahead. And thus he says, Father, 
supply for them. Show them that although I am about to die on that cross and be taken to glory, they are not left alone. Whatever your hardship or spiritual struggles might be right now in this morning, remember these truths. The Father keeps his children. And the answer is not escaping your problems, so that might be where God leads you. It is being kept by him, whatever the outcome. The final point pulls all of these themes together in these couple last requests before Jesus closes the chapter. And this is point number four. We are kept for salvation. We are kept by the Father and Son. We are kept with his joy and his word. We are kept because of this world. And we are kept for salvation. Hence, he prays in verse 17 in this loving guardianship of guarding us to get to glory. He now shows us the intent is to grow us ready for glory by saying, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. This is how we are different and how we constantly become different. We are becoming like the God who saves and keeps us. We are being made holy. Sanctify them. As we discussed on our studies in Thessalonians, sanctification is twofold. It's first being set apart and devoted to God. That this person lives only for the Lord. Like any holy object in the temple only being used for the worship of God. We are positionally put and made for God alone. And also in scripture is the progressive sanctification. The way we now grow to be holy. We are holy and we become holy. And how do we become holy? How are we sanctified? There it is again. Verse 17. In the truth. Your word is truth. Once again, we realize it is not an overstatement that our whole eternity depends on our relationship to the truth. Do we abide in the truth? Are we breathing the Bible? Are we living out the gospel? Do we believe and so live? Your word is truth. We have been devoted to reality. Our eyes are no longer blind. The Bible is the soil we now live in. We grow by the truth. And what is the truth? The glory of who God is. What God has done. How God is working. What God is doing. And the centerpiece of this hour that Jesus said has finally come. The cross. I love the prayer of Psalm 119 verse 18. Where the psalmist says, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Jesus is echoing what the psalmist will later say in that same chapter. The sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And Paul echoes the same sentiment when he is commending the church. What does he say? You accepted our preaching not as the word of men, but what as it really is the word of God. And then he links this prayer of Jesus, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. God's people are constantly being shaped by the word. If we but act on it in faith. We are being sanctified. This is how God keeps us. He is guarding us for glory and he is growing us for glory. And he does so 
through the Word. And here we begin to also see the missional heart of Christ in verse 18. He's not just saving us, He is saving people. He's not just concerned with you, He's concerned with all. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Why has God not returned? Why has God not taken us out of the world as any of us would desire? Because there's more to be saved. There's more to be given and kept. There's more to be sanctified. The work is not done. So we are sent as Jesus was sent in the world. How is this all possible? Verse 19, Jesus highlights again where we anchor ourselves. We anchor ourselves for that sending. We anchor ourselves for our sanctifying. We anchor ourselves for the securing of our salvation because of verse 19. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We are who we are because of what Jesus did. We are secure in the Father's hands because of Jesus. We are sanctified by the promise of God because of Jesus. We are sent into the world to do the Father's work in joy because of Jesus. For their sake, I consecrate myself. Even that word evokes two images, according to one commentator, both of the sacrifice and of the priest. Here we see how the cross is completely on Jesus' mind. Though Jesus has said, it's already accomplished. Here he is making clear for us who are looking to heaven with him, saying, I consecrate myself. This is why I came. Is this not what we read in Romans 8? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? If Jesus consecrated himself and is the greatest gift God can give for us, is there anything else he's going to withhold that we need? Hence, Jesus, helping us lift our eyes to heaven, says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. That, verse 19, they also may be sanctified in truth. Brothers and sisters, we need to listen to this prayer and let these truths wrestle our fears. We need these truths to pierce the clouds of our anxieties. We need these truths to lift up our heavy hearts in depression. We need these truths to clothe our shame and guilt. We need these truths to turn tears of sorrow to tears of joy as we feel his hands gripping us. Holy Father, keep them in your name. God has never failed that prayer of his son and isn't failing it now today in this room and he won't fail it tomorrow. I have guarded them and not one of them is lost, not forgotten, not failed, not alone, not unforgivable, not too much for the glory of God. No, but loved, guarded, and grown to be with him forever in eternal life. We are in God's hands. We're not forgotten. The Father keeps us. That's His will. It's the will of the Son. It's why He's praying. He's praying for us today, still praying and fulfilling that prayer. We have been given to be kept and we will never be cast out. I want to close with those lyrics we just sang a minute ago. 
He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight. He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. Let us walk in that faith and love. Let's pray. Holy Father, even as we declare that name, we want to be holy. We desire your holy name to be lifted up and be proven to the world and proven to one another. You are keeping us. Though we fail, though we do not hold fast, you never let go. Oh, keep us in your intimate, eternal love. Lift up each of our hearts today. I pray even for our fellowship afterwards that you will help us confess our insecurities to one another. And you would give each of us wisdom to speak these truths to one another that we might be encouraged and built up in your sustaining love. Thank you for keeping us, Holy Father, in your name. Amen.